Good morning. I'm Dave, one of the elders here. In my junior year of college, I led a small men's Bible study in my dorm, Allison Hall. Had maybe three guys coming. Attendance was sometimes kind of spotty. But I was also part of a leadership development group for all the different men's Bible study leaders in the whole area of South Campus. Sort of like, for some of you, if you've been in our discipleship groups, it's a group where we're seeking to develop as disciples of Jesus, to learn how to share our faith with others, and to grow as leaders. That was sort of like what our leadership development group was like. And I had a friend in that same leadership group who was leading a Bible study in Willard Hall, a dorm a couple doors down from mine. And my friend's Bible study was doing better. He had more people in it. And one of his friends had just come to faith in his dorm hall and was joining in his Bible study. My friend also was pretty strong. He liked to go to the gym. He was good looking. And he was in the accelerated medical program. So he was going to just be an undergrad for three years, get directly into medical school. And in my heart, I, I began to feel jealous of my friend and his successful ministry. Today, we're going to look at Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, how he brought the gospel to a new place. And we're going to see a mixed response. On the one hand, we're going to see people who are persuaded and respond with faith. On the other hand, we're going to see people who are jealous and respond with an attack. So if you have your Bible today, please turn to Acts chapter 17. And the Bible's provided for you. It's on page 926. We're continuing in our series in the book of Acts called Church on Mission. A key verse for the book of Acts is Acts 1.8, when Jesus, having risen from the dead, speaks to his disciples and says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And as we've been studying the book of Acts, we've seen how the gospel has been moving from that initial start in Jerusalem throughout the Roman world. Rome, the capital, would have been thought of as the end of the earth in that day. And we're going to see in our passage how the gospel goes to a new place. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were in Philippi, which is a city in modern-day Greece, at that time, it was called Macedonia. There they had preached the word. They had been imprisoned. They had a miraculous escape from prison. And now they're continuing down the road to the next towns and coming to Thessalonica. So let me read for us Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And we'll project it on the screen as well. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous 
and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. As we spend time in this passage today, we're going to break it down into three sections. First, we're going to see the message of Jesus proclaimed in a new place. Then we're going to see a mixed response to this message of Jesus. Persuasion and faith on the one hand and jealousy and attack on the other hand. And then third, we're going to look at a specific accusation here that's made about the kingdom of Jesus and evaluate how, in one sense, it's false, but in a deeper sense, it's actually surprisingly accurate. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. The message of Jesus proclaimed in a new place. So we see here in verse 1 how it says that they, that is, Paul and Silas, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then it later says that Paul, as is his custom, went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures. So it's, it's helpful to ask, why do we think that Paul passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia? There were people there who needed Jesus too, right? Why did he stop in Thessalonica? Well, the text seems to indicate that the reason he stopped in Thessalonica was because there was a Jewish synagogue there. Paul, at this point in his ministry, was seeking to engage people who would have had a background in the Old Testament scriptures, who would have understood who God was and would have a basis for understanding what Jesus meant, what his message was all about. And it's helpful for us to think as well, as we think about bringing the gospel to new places, how can we be intentional in our ministry? thinking carefully about, God, where are you leading me to go? How can I be most effective for you? We can bring the gospel to a new place in our own lives on a small level. Perhaps you have a neighbor or a friend who you've been getting to know. What would it look like to perhaps invite them over to your home or get lunch with them? Ask them a little bit about their spiritual background and ask if you could share the message of Jesus with them. Or perhaps you know someone who you could invite to church, perhaps in this time of Easter to the Easter service, or perhaps it's someone who has kids who might enjoy coming to the Easter egg hunt. So we can seek to bring the gospel intentionally to new places in our lives, small places. Maybe it's your neighbor, your coworker, your friend. But as we think about moves in our life, when we go from place to place, just like Paul and Silas were going from place to place, what would it look like for us to think intentionally about the ministry we want to do if we move to a new geographical place or we're considering moving to a geographical place? What would it look like to ask, is there a gospel-proclaiming church in that place I'm considering that I could link arms with so that when I move there, I'll have a home base for ministry to help bring the gospel to that new place with a community of people? Let's look then at what Paul did once he got there to Thessalonica. It says he went into the synagogue, he reasoned with them 
on three Sabbath days from the scriptures. So Paul gave great authority to the Old Testament scripture. He reasoned with them from the scripture. He was considering the scripture as authoritative and trustworthy. The way that Jesus and the original apostles thought about the Old Testament scriptures and the way the scriptures speak for themselves really informs how we should be thinking about the Bible. It's God's authoritative, inerrant word that we can trust, we can reason from it in our own lives and begin to understand how we can live it out. That's what Paul was modeling for us in those conversations. It's interesting what he felt he had to prove. Notice what it says. He says, explaining and proving that it was necessary, what, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Why did he have to explain and prove that? Well, the common Jewish conception of the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word, it means the same thing as Christ, which is the Greek word, which means God's anointed one, God's special appointed deliverer. The common conception of this was of a political deliverer. The people of Israel had dealt with various kingdoms conquering them. Most recently, it was the Romans. They were oppressing, controlling the Jewish people to a large extent. And so they longed, they desired for a human political deliverer who could come, free them from that rule, and establish God's kingdom on earth. And that's not discordant with what the Old Testament says. There are prophecies about God bringing a final judgment, about bringing about his final kingdom. And Jesus is going to fulfill those prophecies. Jesus is going to come back a second time as a ruler king to judge the entire earth. He will come and firmly, finally establish God's kingdom and judge and defeat all evil. But he had to come the first time as a suffering servant. He had to come the first time to pay the penalty for our sins. We don't know what passages Paul used from the Old Testament as he reasoned from the scriptures on that day, but it's quite possible that he may have quoted from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 6. Let me read that for us. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is a scripture about the servant of the Lord who's not going to come in this instant as a conquering king, not politically, not bodily in this world, but as a suffering servant who can come to receive the penalty for sin. For all of us, just as Alex spoke about earlier, our original ancestors, Adam and Eve, and every one of us has rebelled against God. We've sinned. That's why Jesus needed to suffer. It was because of our sin. God desires a relationship with every person. He's created us in his image to know him, to be connected to him. But we've all gone our own way. We've all rebelled against him. And on our own, the natural trajectory of that rebellion, of that sin, is even eternal separation from God. But Jesus made a way. When he came, when he died on the cross, he took the penalty for our sins. Just as that verse in Isaiah says, 
the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he offers this forgiveness to all who would put their faith in him, would receive him, would trust in him, and would commit their lives to following him. So that's why Jesus needed to suffer. And then his resurrection that Paul also talks about, how he rose from the dead, that indicated his ultimate triumph over sin, over death, over Satan, and welcomes us to look with expectant hope for the resurrection we will share as followers of Jesus if we put our faith in him. So if you're not a Christian today, I would encourage you to really contemplate this remarkable person of Jesus. Here is a man who came on the face of the earth not as your typical political revolutionary or your typical moral philosopher. If that's all Jesus had been, he would be a footnote in history at best. Another failed attempt to revolt against the Roman Empire. No, Jesus came as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus came claiming to be God incarnate, claiming to pay the penalty for your sins. I would encourage you to reflect on him and just in the same way as Paul engaged those in Thessalonica from the scriptures, I would encourage you to read the scriptures on your own. Perhaps it's reading the Gospel of Mark with a trusted Christian friend and evaluating the life and teachings of Jesus for yourself. And if you are a Christian today, I would ask you, consider, what type of Messiah, what type of Christ do you kind of want when you're just sort of all alone by yourself. Yeah, you know that Jesus came to die on the cross and he suffered and everything. But if you're like me and you look at your typical prayers, how many of your prayers are, God, would you provide me everything I need financially? Would you help my family be healthy? Would you help me be happy? Would you help things go well? We kind of want a similar thing a lot of times in our lives. We want a Jesus that would improve our daily circumstances many times. And those aren't bad prayers to pray. Don't hear me wrong. Keep praying those prayers. Jesus wants to come, you to come before him and share your heart with him. But how many of your prayers are, Lord, just as you suffered, just as you were a servant, just as you sacrificed, Lord, help me to sacrifice. Lord, help me to endure hardship for you. Help me to be courageous and generous. Help me to be confident and bold in sharing your gospel. It's a more dangerous prayer to pray in many ways, inviting yourself to, to join in the picture of Jesus as a suffering servant. So we see in this first section the message of Jesus proclaimed in a new place, in Thessalonica. Next, let's look in verses 4 and 5 at the mixed response that we see. You see in verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So that would be some of them from the synagogue where Paul was teaching, probably of Jewish background. It also says a great many devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. The devout Greeks would probably have been Gentiles, Greeks, who maybe not had fully become converts of Judaism, hadn't, for example, become circumcised or maybe weren't following all of the dietary regulations of the Jewish faith. But they were sort of hanging around, kind of thinking, well, this is pretty intriguing that there's one God and there's this wonderful law and everything. So they kind of wanted to hang around things. So a number of them became believers in Jesus as well. Notice that Paul was only there in Thessalonica preaching in the synagogue for three weeks. 
And it would seem that a number of people believed after that time. This speaks to the value of even a short interaction with people. Have you ever had a short time with someone? Maybe it was on an airplane flight. Maybe you were doing a short-term ministry trip in a new area and you thought, well, how, what difference is this conversation gonna make? What difference is a few weeks being with these people and sharing the gospel with them? But as we can see, God can work. God can use even a number of shorter interactions with people to bring them to faith. But it's helpful to ask as well, how long was Paul actually in Thessalonica? This text doesn't tell us exactly. It says how, how many Sabbaths he was talking with the Jews in the synagogue. But as we read other books of the New Testament, we get a bigger picture of what was happening here. In the book of Philippians, the church in Philippi, which remember Paul had just come from in Acts 16, they were just up the road, a Roman road called the Via Agnatia. So they were just up the road, Paul had just come from there, and in the book of Philippians that Paul later wrote to them, it says that they sent him financial support when he was in Thessalonica. Not once, but more than once. And also in the book of 1 Thessalonians that Paul later wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he talks about how he labored day and night to not be a burden financially to the people who were there. So we see a picture of Paul working his trade, probably tent making, also receiving financial gifts to do his ministry. And those things together suggest that he was there for a number of months after his initial synagogue preaching. What was he doing in those number of months? The text here doesn't exactly say, but we see some, a little glimpses of what was maybe happening. As, and later on in the text, we see there's Jason, and there's a number of brothers, and the rest. And we see from the books of First and Second Thessalonians that there was a church established. So Paul was there, he was preaching the gospel, even over a limited period of time in the synagogue, and then an ongoing period of time likely thereafter, but he was establishing a church. So we see a picture of evangelism, leading to the founding and the planting of a church. And that's the pattern we want to be about here at Beacon. We heard today a little bit about Trinity Church of Bedford that just got commissioned last week. We prayed for them today. Our pastor, Dane, who's normally preaching, is actually there today supporting Scott and everyone else in the service today. So that's our desire, is that we would be about evangelism, locally, in our own lives, our own spheres of influence, but also be about founding new churches in new areas. That's hopefully the first of multiple churches we'll be able to be a part of sending out from our congregation. Notice the diversity as well of people in verse 4. We see that some, implicitly probably Jews from the synagogue, were persuaded, as well as a number of devout Greeks, leading women. So we see men and women, people of different social classes, people of different ethnic and religious backgrounds, all coming together to believe in Jesus. The gospel is the great uniter of people. And that's something we desire for all our church as well, that people from disparate backgrounds can come together and be united by the grace of Jesus. But we see also in verse 5, this response of jealousy. But the Jews were jealous. Probably Jewish leaders of the synagogue, seeing the ministry growing, feeling a sense of jealousy just like I felt in my Bible study back as a college student. And it's helpful to ask yourself, have you been jealous of someone else? Or of someone else's ministry, someone else's success? There are a few things that I found helpful in my own struggle with this sin. One was even just praying for the success of someone else. If it's a good thing, if it's a good gospel ministry, just pray for its success. 
And I tried to pray for my friend's Bible study, even though it was bigger and better than mine, <laughs> to pray for the success of others. That's part of the reason we pray for other churches here at Beacon. We recognize that Beacon Community Church is not the only gospel-proclaiming church in greater Boston. We want to pray for the success of other ministries. You can pray for the success of other people in your life. You can also ask God to change your heart. God, would you help me to value what you value? God, help me to see this from your perspective, not from my own limited vantage point. God, help me to value your kingdom and not my own kingdom. Value your name and not my own name. And then also be thankful. Say, Lord, thanks to the three guys that came to my Bible study. <laughs> Lord, thanks to the work you are doing. Thanks to what you have given me. I think those things are helpful antidotes for us as we wrestle with the temptation to jealousy with other people. So we see the Jews were jealous. They took some men of the rabble. They formed a mob. They set the city in uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason. So who is Jason? He suddenly gets name-dropped right into this passage, actually three times mentioned here. Paul, in the letter to Romans, in Romans 16, he has a whole number of greetings to different people. One of them is Jason, who he describes as a fellow countryman. Were they the same Jason? We don't know for sure. But it's possible that Jason was a leader in the early church, a fellow countryman, perhaps a Jew like Paul. And evidently, Jason had housed Paul and Silas. And at the end of the passage, we see Jason putting up security financially for Paul and Silas. So Jason was modeling this type of gospel-motivated generosity, housing, using house, using money to advance the kingdom of Christ. And as we think about modeling and imitating the suffering that Jesus went through as a suffering servant that we saw in chapter 3, practical acts of generosity can be a tangible way to do that. Is there someone you could invite in your home? Is there a way you could use your finances to advance the kingdom of God? Then as we look at verses 6 through 9, let's evaluate an accusation that's getting made about the kingdom of Jesus. Okay, so they had gotten this rabble together. When they could not find them, that is Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. This accusation has two parts. First, that they were turning the world upside down, they'd come here too, and then that they're working against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Let's talk about these accusations in, in two parts. So what about this first part, that these men who turned the world upside down have come here also? Other translations say this a little bit differently. Some would say upsetting, like, okay, if I'm gonna turn it upside down, I'm upsetting it. Or some would just use a, a more idiomatic translation that would say they're causing trouble, they're making a ruckus, different things like that. We see a picture that there's an accusation that Paul and Silas and those other early Christians are disrupting the order of things. They're, they're messing things up, they're causing trouble. So let's evaluate this. Well, who's really causing trouble here? We just have to look back at what was happening. Paul and Silas were peaceably teaching the message of Jesus, person to person, and those who were opposing them, who were attacking them, they were riling up some wicked men of the rabble and setting the city in uproar. They were disturbing the peace. They were causing problems here. 
So in one sense, it's, it's very unreasonable to say they were causing trouble or they were turning the world upside down. They seem to be going about their business, more or less, and those who were opposing them seemed to be causing trouble. They were the ones disrupting the peace. They were the ones causing a racket. But let's think about this a little more deeply. Let's go back to verse 3. What was Paul explaining? What was the message that Paul was giving in that synagogue? He was trying to persuade them that the God of the universe, who created everything, who rules as the great king of all, he had come down as a suffering servant. He had come down as a human being to suffer and die for our sins and to rise from the dead. This is a pretty radical departure from what was commonly taught in that day. And as the message of Jesus began to spread around the ancient Roman world and beyond, it had an ongoing effect. It began to, to alter the way people thought about the world. And it really did, in a sense, turn the world upside down because the message of Jesus is just so radical. It's such a reversal. The great king, the great powerful one, God, becomes the one who suffers. And it has had a historical impact on society. There's a historian named Tom Holland, not himself a Christian, but who's appreciative of the impact of the message of Jesus on the larger society. He's published some work summarizing this, and here's one of his quotes. He says, familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods, false gods, of course, who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. And he goes on to say that this, this radical message of Jesus as a suffering servant has had an effect on the way many people in historically Christian countries have thought about suffering, saying that many of us who live in post-Christian societies still take it for granted that it is more noble to suffer than to inflict suffering, and also why people often think that every human being is of equal value. So the message of Jesus really did have an upside-down, world-changing effect. And this accusation is, in, in many ways, rather accurate. It has turned the world upside down. The message of Jesus really did form a dividing point in history that even societally had large impacts. Well, what about the second part where he says that the accusation is that they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So again, on the face of it, unreasonable. There's no specific decree of Caesar they're acting against. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 16, when Paul had been imprisoned and beaten, in verse 37, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. So Paul is invoking his Roman citizenship in Acts chapter 16. Paul is a good Roman citizen by many accounts. And we're going to see later in Acts, Paul actually appeals to Caesar. So Paul is actually acting within the Roman kind of court system. So on one sense, it's very unreasonable to claim that they were trying to foment some kind of political revolution to oppose the Caesar or acting against the decrees of Caesar. Okay, so that's the false part. All right, but, but let's ask ourselves, as Christians, 
Who is our ultimate king? Is it the Caesars of our day? Is it the political government? Well, no. If you look back in, in Acts chapter 4, we see James, or sorry, uh, Peter and John were accused of telling people about Jesus. And the council there was telling them, hey, we want you to stop this. And they said, judge for yourselves. Who do we need to listen to, you or God? So as Christians, we're actually citizens of two kingdoms. Our primary, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, where Jesus is king, where we look to him as the ultimate ruler. Um, and our secondary citizenship is here on earth as a citizen of whatever nation we're a part of, whoever is the latest Caesar that's, that's ruling over um, our nation or whatever nation that, that we're thinking about. And if those allegiances ever come into conflict, like we saw in Acts chapter 4, we are called to follow Jesus as our ultimate king. In the, in the Roman world, it was common for people to say, Caesar is Lord, and the, and the Christian creed is Jesus is Lord. But remember, we have that secondary citizenship of the earth, of the political system we're a part of. And as Christians, we can have a secondary level impact on seeking to improve things in the country we're a part of. So our primary citizenship is in heaven. Our primary goal as Christians is advancing God's heavenly kingdom. And secondarily, we're citizens of an earthly kingdom. So again, this objection is false in many ways on the face of it. They weren't disturbing the peace. They didn't seem to be acting against any obvious decree of Caesar. But it has a deeper meaning to it, which is that we ultimately are trusting in Jesus as our greater king. Notice how this passage ends. In verses 8 and 9, it says, and the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Okay? And then when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let these men go. Who are these men? Who are they? Paul and Silas. So this passage ends in a similar way to it began. It began with Paul and Silas coming down the road, passing through some towns, coming to Thessalonica, bringing the gospel to a new place. Where does it end? It ends with them being forced out through this arrangement with a security deposit, something like bail along those lines, and they're, they're being pushed out to the next town. And we're going to see uh, in our next sermon how Paul preaches in the next town, Berea. So we see church on mission, beginning the end of this passage, the gospel moving forward. We, as well, stand in an unbroken line of discipleship and church planning that stretches all the way back to those original Christians. And may it not end with us. May we continue to share the gospel of Christ, to be a part of church planting, and to have an impact for him. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. We thank you, God, for how you guided him and Silas there, for the church that was established, the follow-up that happened, the letters written, Lord. I pray for our lives, God, that we would be able to walk deeply with you, Lord. We, we pray that we would be a part of sharing your good news, Lord, and in our own spheres of influence. We pray we could be a part of helping to raise up disciples of Jesus, fighting against temptation to sin like jealousy or other things, Lord. Help us to be your ministers courageously, God. And, and we do pray for the establishment of churches as well. We pray for church planning initiatives. Lord, we thank you today for Trinity Church of Bedford 
that we just got to commission last week. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen that church. Lord, as they celebrate their first service today, God, we pray that you would grow them, develop them, and Lord, may this be the first of multiple churches that we are sending Church Hope and even Trinity could be a part of planting, Lord. And we commit these things to you in your name. Amen.